Shall we open our service in a moment of prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for another beautiful Sunday morning with the weather moderating and people traveling and moving around. 
We thank thee for, the, for this opportunity to gather. And we thank thee most of all because, as we just sang, that Jesus cares for us. He cares for us each day. He cares for us through this, through our ups and downs through life and trials and things that come our way. We thank thee for all these things. We thank thee for those natural blessings that make our life complete. Homes and love and work and food and clothing, all these things that we need to get through this life naturally. We thank thee for this word. We thank thee for that understanding that comes from this living word that Jesus is the word of life, thy son Jesus. And we thank thee for that promise he gives us that we hear often that we're two or three are gathered in his name. He will be and is here among us. Watch over all those that gather this morning, wherever they may be. Watch over those that are going through trials. Give us the joy of salvation, each one of us. Watch over the leaders of our nations that we could gather as the days go by and in peace as we gather today. And we even thank you for this these facilities that the community provides for us and gives us. Watch over our, our service this morning. Watch over each of us as individuals. Our speaking brother, as we look into this word, open these things to him. Open the depths of thy word unto him and open these understandings to each of us as individuals that that we can go forth in the next few days or whatever it might be and continue to believe, continue to hold on to the hand of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear us now as we pray together that prayer Jesus taught us. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Somebody have a song to continue with? 180. 180. Okay.
May we be greeted this morning with greetings of grace and mercy and peace from God our Heavenly Father, through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm sure that song is familiar to, to all of us. It's, I guess, generally, I don't know how you classified songs, but it seems to be kid's song or a children's song, hymn, I guess because of the simplicity of it, and yet it tells us, Jesus himself tells us that unless we become as a little child, we will not come to know the kingdom of God, so it is the desire of God himself that each of us no matter how much we might understand or what depth of scripture or even if we could call ourselves theological that the basis of everything would be that simple faith in what Christ has done for each of us individually I was sitting there singing it, came to mind a story, and maybe some of you have heard it. I may have even repeated it from here at some time. It was something my grandfather had said 
that there was a man that he, I don't know whether he had read about him or whether he knew him, I can't remember at this point. But the man had the ability, he obviously was a lingualist of some sort. He had read the Bible supposedly from cover to cover in five different languages. And he had been asked that, what have you learned in your studies and in doing that? And his answer simply was, sorry, he had come to understand that Jesus loved him. And it is true. And we have this word of God, which we understand is Christ. And when he opens it through the spirit, it becomes living and it reveals to a heart that he loves us. And it doesn't matter whether it is something in the word that, if I say, gives us a poke that pricks our conscience. He isn't doing it to make us feel bad. It maybe and rightfully does at times often make us feel bad when we recognize how we've fallen and maybe how far we've fallen short of what God would desire of us. But he does it because he loves us and wants us to look for the answer to that sin or that problem that we're dealing with. Maybe look a little further into the word and come to understand that not only does he point out how we err, but he points out what to do with that err, those problems. He points us to that mercy seat He points us to that forgiveness that is available through what Christ has done. He points us or clarifies. We say what it is that he has done for us, that that forgiveness is available, that his righteousness is available for all of us. Not because we deserve it, not because we've walked such upright lives, that it can be ours because of that, but simply because he does love us. And his love for us is such that he does everything with the knowledge because he is all-knowing and the desire that our undying portion would spend eternity in heaven. And that we would be with him. And we would be the children of God. And we would be heirs with Christ. It is something that with our limited human understanding, we are unable to truly comprehend, I don't, I believe. But... I would hope that each and every one of us by faith could take hold of that understanding and trust that it is so. We have a loving and merciful and gracious God 
who is just and righteous and demands absolute perfection. And he understands because of what we are, just weak human beings, that we cannot on our own live up to that standard. And it isn't that he doesn't demand that we do, but it's that he has given the means that we are able to take that righteousness and perfection for ourselves because Christ has accomplished it for us. It is very contrary to natural reasoning and it's even contrary to how we as Christians often view things. We recognize that most oftentimes we get what we deserve. If we live in a certain manner, there's consequences for that, whether they be good or bad. And perhaps as we get into the text that seem to come today, it kind of contrasts those two paths that are available and how our natural reasoning can look at those things and that we would, as Christians, be careful. And it isn't that we don't use our natural minds. We've been given them. And if we use them wisely and use them in conjunction with the direction of the Spirit and pray, it tells us in one place in Proverbs that if we put everything, I'll see if I can find it here quick to read it. This is in the 16th Proverb. It says, Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. It isn't just that we sit down and reason everything out. It's that when we see what it is that we are dealing with, whether it's natural work or whether it's a problem or just a day-to-day thing, that we would give those things to God and ask that He would direct our thoughts. That His wisdom would be given to us through His Spirit. And that we could use our minds wisely. Because we look at the world around us and we see that there are men and and we cannot deny that they are very intelligent they have some of them have a huge volume of learning but on top of that they are just brilliant intellectually and yet when we compare it and the Bible tells us that it's very often that way that man's intellect doesn't add up to what how God works, or how God's mind works, or whatever we call it. His ways are so far above ours that we can get off track. We can go back to the simple fact of the Christmas story. We look at heads of states, kings and queens, and whatever. They travel just within the world. And when they get to their destination, if they're going to, say, have a meeting in some other country or perhaps a a meeting of a group of them, whatever it is, when they land, there's people to meet them, there's dignitaries to meet them, there's perhaps bands, there's a lot of pomp and ceremony that goes along with those things. And we see that that's how it works. 
the Savior of the world came from heaven to this world. And he was born of just, I'm sure at the time, what seemed like just a very ordinary young lady that probably very few people even knew about, let alone knowing her, compared to the world. And he was born in a manger. That is often the problem that we have as people. When we're seeking God, or perhaps even desiring that God would seek us, how often it is that we're looking for something big and flashy and miraculous and overlook that still small voice. I could turn and read, but I'm sure most of us are familiar with the portion where um, Elijah, and he is running and he's in the cave, and I can't remember the order, but first I believe it says that there is an earthquake, and I don't know if any of us have been in a that big of an earthquake, but I've been told that it is kind of a very disconcerting thing when the very ground that we're moving on is what is causing the problem and is unstable. It is something that is quite miraculous, but it tells us that God was not in the earthquake. And then it says there is was a fire. And we all understand fire, even from a small little one that we can look at and is amazingly comforting. They tell us that, or I've read or understand that if a person's lost, even in the wilderness, sometimes to take the time to, if you can, light a fire because it gives a peace and calm and allows us even to think to something that's big and overwhelming and very destructive. It is a force of nature that is amazing. And yet, it tells us, God was not in fire. And then it tells that there was a wind that was so powerful that it broke the rocks. But God was not in that wind. And I think that is often what we as people, maybe it's just me, I, I think that surely God is going to come with something big and miraculous, and if he would just do that, people would surely turn to him. We read the story of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man says that if God would just send someone back from the dead, that they would listen, those people would listen. He was speaking of his brothers and those other people. And my mind agrees with him. Moses tells him, or I mean Abraham tells him if he does they will not hear Moses and the prophet, though one would come back from the dead, they will not listen to him. And we can read the story of Jesus coming back from the dead and the point is proved. There was those ones that there was irrefutable evidence. I don't know how many soldiers were there that witnessed it and yet instead of believing them, they paid them off that they would lie about the thing. God so often comes as he did to Elijah in the cave it says, and then there was a still, 
small voice. And I believe that it is part of why the Bible encourages us in that one place where it says, Be still and know that I am God. That we would take the time, the opportunity, perhaps make the opportunity, that we could be quiet, that we could hear even that still small voice of what God is telling us. There is, I find, so easy and so many, sorry, that was worded poorly, but there are so many, and I am so easily caught up in so many of the things that can distract us in this world. We, I believe, maybe more now than ever in history, have so many different things that want to bombard us with information, facts, with distractions, whatever it is. I think it is more on us now than ever, perhaps, that we would be prudent to take the time to be still. That we would take the time to prayerfully and humbly seek the will of God in all that we do. For a text this morning, we will turn to the book of Psalms, and I will read the 73rd Psalm. It is not overly long, but it's not real short. We will read in Jesus' name. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone, my steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there were no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain, violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness, they have more than than the heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression, they speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue walketh through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of full cup are wrung out of them. And they say, How doth God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued, and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakeneth, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant, I was as a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. 
<coughs> my flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But there is good for me to draw near to God. Sorry, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Amen. This psalm is written, obviously, well, it says in my Bible it was written by Asaph, who was one of the men who was in charge of worship at one time in the temple. He was a godly man. They didn't at that time, I don't suppose, call them Christian, but we could say he was a Christian man. He trusted and believed in God. And if I say not only was he that, but it would appear that even his day-to-day work was not in some secular job, but it was dealing directly with, on a day-to-day basis, with matters of the temple and the worship of God. And not that that makes anybody any more holy. But it, I'm just trying to point out the fact that this was his position in life. And yet we hear, or we see here as we read this psalm, how it is that his natural reasoning, or the devil is able to bring into his thoughts things that question the way that God works. And I think it is good for us to consider these matters at times. I don't know that you are any different than me or any different than this man. Or even we can read about John the Baptist. And it tells us, Jesus says, that he was one of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And yet we remember that he was thrown into prison by Herod. And maybe I'll back up a little bit, and I'm sure we're all aware of it, but here is a man who, even in his mother's womb, it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was, it was promised even before he was conceived to his father Zechariah that he would possess the Spirit and He was going to be a special child, if I say a special man, and have a special purpose here in this world, which was to be a forerunner to Christ, to bring the message that the Savior is about to be born. And that was his purpose right from, well, from in the womb. It was knowing that. And I'm sure that he was taught those things or it was instructed to him and the Spirit guided him right from when he was born or even before when he was born. And and he saw Jesus in the flesh. He witnessed and he baptized him and, and it tells us that the Spirit of God descended as a dove on him. He witnessed all those things. And yet when Herod had thrown him into prison, he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus that, are you the Christ or do we look for another? 
And I don't think that it tells us that in any way to, excuse me, that we would look down on John. But I think it tells us that that we can read those things and when we look in our own walk, how often is it that we have doubts about does God care for us? Or whatever it is that we are, is brought to us that would be a question of something in the Bible or something about how God would direct our life. I'm sure that each and every person from Adam and Eve, the devil in some way has brought that same question he brought to Eve. Eve, hath God really said? The devil wants to bring some doubt, and he doesn't just bring that bare question very often. He does the same as Eve. He's like, take a look at this. Did God really mean what he said? And how often do we look in this word of God and perhaps the spirit brings something to our heart? And it's a question of maybe about somehow or something we're doing or maybe even a direction on how to deal with some problem or some situation that we are to deal with. And the devil's very quick to bring the thought that, I don't know, is that really how you should deal with that? I think there's another better way to do it. And the Bible tells us, and we we read the um, account of Eve, he'll bring scripture and or a, most often a portion of scripture kind of out of context or perhaps add something to it. And I believe that that is one of the most important reasons that we read the Bible, that we encourage others to read the Bible, that we would take the opportunity to look into the Bible and fellowship about it. It doesn't make us a better Christian. The Spirit of God dwells in our heart. We're a Christian. But if we are versed in the word of God, it gives us a foundation. And, and it's very quick and easy, the better we know it, to notice or pick up on something that doesn't quite add up to the word of God. Something that's just off a little bit. And I'm sure we can understand that, that if something is way out in left field, so to speak. It's easier to see that. If someone is trying to take black and make it and say that it's white, it's easier to see that than if it's taking a little bit of gray and say that, well, it's a little too gray, which is what the devil wants to do. And I guess perhaps as Christians... As frustrating as it is and seemingly overwhelming to me as it seems to be, when we look at what's going on in the world today, it's getting so there's very little 
gray area. They're wanting to take something that is black and white and say that black is white. Something that is very clearly wrong and say, no, no, that's totally fine. And, and it's what happens when we take God out of a situation where we take it that man's reasoning or when there's the idea of that the majority is right or that the person who has the most power is who's right. And it's often that we in democracies, we go with the majority and that's what is right or perceived as right. Or then we take the situation where someone has the most power and they lay out and say this is how things are going to be and in those cases we can't necessarily say that it is right but it's perhaps the law. And we can get where it becomes a legal system instead of a justice system. And I remember someone telling me years ago that our laws and our judges and all those things, they're a legal system. Because we've taken that there, the fact that there is a basic foundation of right and wrong based upon what God says. And it doesn't matter how our human reasoning wants to navigate around some fact or not. It's still what God says is the foundation of what is right and wrong. And I think in the world today, because of all the, if we say, corruption in high places and corruption in places of power, if there's someone who wants to take a stand on the foundation of God, God, I believe, has to give the strength to do that because we as people think we just get bulldozed. But there is no better way to make, if I say, what we stand on or what we stand for. That it would not be just my reasoning or your reasoning or my thoughts or this is what I think. But we can simply take and let them fight with God, so to speak, and say, this is what God's word says. And so that is what I am going to go with. And it gives us, I guess, a freedom. It gives us a freedom from, if I say, fighting with someone or arguing with someone, because we don't have to. They can take it up with God if they want to. Asaph, when he writes this, he acknowledges it says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as of our clean heart. And we see that. We see that we watch people's lives and people who live upright lives, things tend to go good for them. There is a blessing in walking the way that God directs us. And, and as it says here, especially those that have a clean heart. If someone walks in such a way that their heart is right before God, there's that peace of a good conscience. There's blessings in that for sure. It says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. 
for I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We look around us in the world and there's an idea and it's just human nature of what is good and what adds up to prosperity and adds up to go, getting forward in the world. And, and there's various basic things that different ones, some want money, some want power, whatever it is, status. And we see that man has the ability within himself to accomplish those things without having anything to do with God. And oftentimes, people are very prosperous in those things. And we, in our time, have the access, if I say, to internet, to news, to media, and we can see these people who, they are in very influential positions. And as Christians, we can see that they have not gotten there by walking godly lives. They have not necessarily gotten there by being kind and humble. They have done it by being arrogant and putting themselves forward and stepping on the little guy and you could go on and on. We understand how the world can work. And he says, for there is no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not worried about anything after this life. Their focus is on what they're going to accomplish and what they can accomplish, and they are doing it. And he recognizes that that is how it is. These things happen. He said, they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasses them about as a chain, violence covers them as a garment. We see the method by why they work, and he recognizes this. And this is, I'm not sure how many thousand years ago, two, maybe three thousand years ago that this is going on, and we talk, and maybe rightfully so, maybe not quite as right as my mind would want to think of it being, that things are getting worse in the world around us. Yes, in some ways, perhaps they are, but mankind is mankind. Human nature is human nature, and it's been that way from the beginning. And so these things of how human nature works, it hasn't changed from the time of Asaph to now. And what God allows to happen in the world is that way also. It says they are corrupt. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish. They have, and we see it, and I don't know why it pops to my mind, maybe because he's been known as the wealthiest man, but we talk about Bill Gates. And the amount of money that he has is beyond my comprehension in reality. You couldn't spend it in many lifetimes. And yet there is a drive for more. It tells us in the one place that when goods increase, that there's no, sorry, my mind can't come up with how to quote it, but basically it's saying 
that if your goal is increasing your natural goods, there's no end to that road. There's, you're not satisfied no matter how much you have. And we see it played out in the world today. And I've had people come to me and say, why on earth would he do these things? Like he, he has at that fact that I said, more money than he could ever spend in many of his lifetimes. And his kids couldn't spend it and all these things. And we see, though, that is not the point, to have enough. The point is simply to have more. And it doesn't matter what our natural being is striving to get more of. They just want more. It's not enough. It's just more. And... As I mentioned already there, it says they are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongues walketh through the earth. They live in such a way that as a Christian, and I'm sure we have all seen those things. Or heard something from someone in one of those positions. And as a Christian, when we understand difference between right and wrong and that you do not want to mock God and I've seen little clips on I don't know maybe YouTube or whatever doesn't matter where someone has taken some celebrity or some person in power who has very flippantly talked against God and the outcome of those lives and many times we see that God, even very quickly, will not be mocked. And sometimes, and there's a place in Ecclesiastes that I read not too long ago, where it tells how, um, I don't know if I can turn to it here quickly, but it tells how <clears throat> there are those who, who live righteous lives, and yet their lives are shortened, and those that prolong their days in their wickedness. And we see that those things happen. But as Christians, we can recognize very quickly that if someone is talking flippantly or mocking God, we cringe for them. They, they do not understand what they are playing with, if I put it that way. It, it is overwhelmingly scary to think about what they are doing. And yet, it happens. And they're not worried about God, and they're not worried about their fellow men. They're going to get what they want. And, and it doesn't matter the depths that they go to. It says, Therefore, as people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them, and they say, How doth God, and is there knowledge in the Most High? We can see these things as Christians. And the devil can bring that thought to our mind, even as he did to Asaph here, that does God not see what's going on here? These people, they're able to accomplish so much. And it's an interesting thing, and this is maybe a side note, but I've, I guess... It appears to my mind that I've witnessed this thing happening and then we read in when it talks about before the flood and it says 
the sons of God married the daughters of men, and they had <coughs> sons who were men of renown, powerful men in this earth. And it tells us here, even Solomon says that, or maybe it's David, sorry, I don't know which one, but he mentions that he has never seen children from Christian, this isn't quoted verbatim, obviously, but he has never witnessed children of Christian parents who have suffered hunger, that God has taken care of them, that there is blessings even down to those, even if they turn away from God, there's still blessings that come there. And sometimes I think that there are those people who, they were exposed as children to Christianity. And yet they turned away from it and decided that they're going to do things on their own. And maybe they use those principles that God lays out that we're supposed to do things to the best of our ability and that we're going to, going, we should do, if I say things, sorry, I don't know how to word it, but that we would do things the best we can and, and other things that are just basic principles that God would lay out for us living here. And then they take that and add to it their, their own thinking and reasoning and they can accomplish great things and looking at it from the natural sense we can agree with Asaph here that wow these guys can accomplish a lot and they don't seem to have the problems that I do and they're big men in this world so to speak it says behold these are the ungodly who's prosper in this world and they increase in riches he says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. We see a change here. He's all of a sudden comparing to how it is that he lives with how they live. He's, he's worried about the matters of his heart and that he would be right before God and that things that he has done He's turned to God, if we say very simply, he's turned to seek forgiveness that God would look at him as being innocent because he's forgiven for what Christ has done. And he worries about these matters and that obviously it would appear that when he has failed or done something wrong, that God pricks his heart and he pays attention to it. It says, all day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He's like, what good is this accomplishing for me? It just seems that I'm constantly faced with my failures. And, and every morning, he wakes up in the morning and God's correcting him. It makes me think of this portion in <coughs> the Proverbs, and it's recorded in the New Testament too. It says... If I can find it here. It says, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. And there we start, when we read that, to begin to see 
the difference. God isn't plaguing him here as he says. And he isn't chasing him every morning because he wants to trouble him. He's doing it because he loves him and he, he is caring about his walk in this life. It says, but if I say, I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. His mind was reasoning out those these things with his natural thinking, and it was causing him pain. He's wondering, and I'm sure all of us can relate to this. It's like, is this worth all the trouble that I'm having to deal with? I could just turn my back on that and go out in the world and accomplish something. And life could be good. I wouldn't have to worry about my conscience. And I wouldn't have to worry about dealing with God correcting me. We can see evidence in the world around us that there's people that live that way. Things seem to be going fine for them. Why are we walking and letting this God that we can't even see poke us and get after us for what we're doing? Then here we see a drastic change. And he writes, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. And I believe it is why we fellowship. It is why we look into this word of God. Why we even take the opportunity to gather at times like this. That we could look at this word of God. And that we could be encouraged to turn our focus to eternity. And it is something that our natural minds can't comprehend. And we can look at lives and we can read about even Methuselah. He lived 969 years, which is longer than any of us can comprehend. And we look at our natural life today and there's very few that make a hundred. And I don't know if there's anybody that makes, I don't know what the oldest person is, but maybe 115. I don't know if anybody's made 120 for years. But even his life is a blip compared to eternity. We can't comprehend it. Forever. (coughs) How long is it? It's endless. If we look at our lives, even if we live a hundred years, there would be take nine of us plus to live as long as Methuselah did. And yet compared to forever, it's still nothing. And yes, we have problems in this life. And yes, some of them are big problems. And there's troubles that can plague us daily, that can get very tedious and troublesome and tiring. We read about the rich man and Lazarus, though, and it tells us that the rich man lived very sumptuously, and Lazarus, he laid at the man's gate, and the dogs licked his stores. And he ate just the crumbs that came from the rich man's table. And oftentimes, I think we can get caught up with thinking, well, this life is so troublesome, 
I don't deserve this. What in the world? I walk as a child of God and surely he could make things a little simpler and better for me. I don't know if anyone else thinks that way, but my mind turns there far too often probably. And I think it is good if we take the time to come into this sanctuary of God, this fellowship, into turn into this word of God and look. It doesn't matter in reality how bad this life is. If we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, what we have to look forward to, this is nothing. It tells us, I believe it's in in Peter, in 1 Peter, I think, where he tells us that we should, um, yeah, here it is, 4th chapter, 1 Peter. It says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. This isn't something out of the ordinary. It's going to. But it says, But rejoice in so much as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. It says, Let none of you suffer as murderers, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other man's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this on this behalf, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. It is how it is. We face these problems. It's part of life as a human. It doesn't matter whether we're Christian or not Christian. Whether we believe or don't believe, there's, we live in a fallen world and we're going to face problems. But we have that great privilege, and actually many privileges as Christians. One, we have the privilege of recognizing that it is very finite and it's going to end. And if we have that spirit of God and we're the child of God, we have eternity with God to look forward to, which is better than we can comprehend. Plus, we have that other great benefit that we understand and know and can believe that the Spirit of God is dwelling in us and if we will but turn to Him, He will lead us and guide us unerringly. It may not necessarily be the path that we would want to choose and it may not be a road of wonderful things happening constantly. It may be tough. I've put it this way sometimes. Jesus, he was perfect. He came to this earth, walked in absolute perfection to the will of God. And yet, the rulers of the day were able to come up with enough to crucify him. We cannot come anywhere near walking perfectly. The only perfection we have is his. We fail miserably what in reality can we expect yes he died for us and he was was and is glorified and it tells us that if we (coughs) are willing to believe and trust in that and crucify this flesh daily as it tells us 
meaning that we would not let the flesh rule in our life, but that we would have the Spirit of God to rule our days, that we will be raised up and glorified with Him. This, I believe, are the things that it was reminded to Asaph here when he went into the under sanctuary. He understood, as it says in Proverbs there, that yes, the spirit of the beast just returned to the earth, but the spirit of man returns to God who sent it. That there isn't just this life and that's the end of things. <coughs> if it was just that way, that we live this life, we die, that's the end of things, then there's no reason that we couldn't live however we wanted to. And I've heard a man say that there is nobody in this world, or almost nobody that lives like they're a true atheist. Because if they were a true atheist, they would do whatever they wanted, whatever we say, whatever feels good, or whatever brings them what they want. <clears throat> if you need to kill this person so that you can get what you want, who cares? There's nothing when life ends at the end of it, so you get what you can. And that's the basic principle if you're an atheist, because there's no God to answer to. But we also remember that right at the beginning, what was the problem? Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And whether people want to deny it or not, there's an understanding in human nature no matter how someone tries to squelch it down, that there's right and wrong. There's good and bad. And people want to circumvent that so that they can get around the fact that there's actually a God we have to answer to. Asaph, he goes, and if I say he, he goes to God and he sees that there's an end to these things. It says, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places, thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation in such as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakeneth, so, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. He sees that the good, or what they think is good, their increase in natural things has a distinct end. And it accomplishes almost nothing. It accomplishes something in this life, perhaps. But in the next, it is not only of no value, it is of negative value. It is something that is going to, if you say, weigh on their record. It tells us now this is a complete jump, but it, <laughs> speaking of Judgment Day and Revelations, it's an interesting thing. It speaks of people being judged out of what they've done that have been written down in the books, and, and I believe that that's what these people will face. And as I said, it becomes a negative, these things. It's a detriment to their judgment, or if I say God's judgment towards them. But the interesting thing is, and this is the hard thing for us to understand as Christians, except by faith. It doesn't tell about the Christians being 
the believers being judged about by the things they have done. They are simply judged, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And that is how it is. Yes, when we fall into sin, we seek forgiveness for those things. Not to make us a Christian, but that we would not have those things weighing on us and weighing our walk down. That we could have a clear conscience before God, even as Asaph says here. It seems troublesome to us, but the truth of the matter is there's great freedom in that. And God wants us to walk free. He wants us to have, when I say walk free, it means that we have an assurance and our faith is clear. That yes, my name is written in that Lamb's book of life. That's what I'm putting my faith in. Not in my ability to walk good or better or good enough. That is not going to get us to heaven. But the fact that we are the child of that we are a child of God and our name, He knows it because it is written there. That is what we put our faith in. It says, Thus was my heart grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was a be- as a beast before thee. We see here that looking into God's word, looking into how actually things are, when we look at it from the perspective of how God has laid it out, even that we would have thinking and reasoning, which we do as he laid out here in the first part of this psalm, we realize how foolish it is. We do not in any way want to look at anybody who is walking contrary to God's word, no matter how good of things they appear to be accomplishing, we would not be envious of them. No matter the lowliest, and we can take and, and the rich man, it doesn't matter how rich he is, when it comes to the end, Lazarus had nothing to envy in him. He was in a much better place. And it doesn't add up to our natural minds, it doesn't makes sense to our reasoning but I hope that each of us by faith can understand that and if, if and when our thoughts go to a similar place as Asaph here God could turn our thinking and we could come to this place where we recognize that we would want God to guide us as it says pricked in his reins that God would be the one who steers us And we would not let our own reasoning get in the way and want to guide our life. It says, Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with with thy counsel and afterwards receive me to glory. He recognizes the love and mercy of his God. He recognizes that His natural reasoning gets in his way. And he can start questioning God. 
And God brings him back lovingly to that understanding that God's way is the best way. That Jesus loves him and he shows him. He continues to, as he said, hold his right hand. It's a maybe nothing in a way, but I was sitting there and Drew and Shelby came in and then they walked here and Yuri had got a little bit ahead. And Drew reaches down and he takes his hand. And they walk here. Our God desires to do that with us. To hold our hand. And take us in the direction where he would like us to go. Take us to where we can hear more of his word. Have fellowship with him. Asaph has experienced that. I hope each of us have. That God would, sorry, gently lead us and care for us. Because he loves us. It says, who have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We look at that. And yes, our natural bodies, they fail us. Doesn't matter how healthy we are and whatever, this natural body, it has problems. And some of us more than others. And yes, our hearts can tremble looking at what's going on around us or perhaps looking at what a weak individual we can feel like we are. But what a promise this is. He recognizes that, but said, God is the strength in my heart and my portion forever. It isn't in our ability to strengthen our heart. If we're a child of God, he can do that. And he is very quick and desires to, if we will, but ask him. If if we feel like we're being overwhelmed by this natural life, turn to God. He will encourage us. He can strengthen us. It isn't in our ability to strengthen our, our heart. Let us let God do it. It says, For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. It is not a good place to be away from God. In James, he says, If we draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to us. Let us desire and seek to draw near to God. Because it promises us there that he will draw near to us. And it is not a good thing to be away from God. It says they will perish and they will be destroyed. It is how it is. It doesn't matter how good things look for someone who's turned their back on God might be in this life. It's a bad, bad thing. And it doesn't matter how lowly or humble or oppressed life someone has in this world. If they are the child of God, they are very blessed. And by faith, I think we can understand that. And let us take the time to look into this word and fellowship 
about those matters of eternity, that we could remember those things and be encouraged in those things. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy words. I pray that each of us could take that verse for ourselves and speak it with truth for ourselves. And that we would understand it is good for us to draw near to God and to put our trust in him. There is nothing sure to put our trust in than God. Nothing. May God add his blessing to his word. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we humble our hearts and receive the benediction? May the Lord bless thee and keep thee. May the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I don't know. Maybe we'll just, since I'm up here. Um, there was a meeting two Saturdays ago, which I wasn't there that's not the problem. The problem is that the bank that we're dealing with seems to have quite a few rules and regulations. And I understand a little bit of them. Sheila probably has had to deal with them, so she understands them better than I do. But anyway, um, to transfer the um, ability to who can do checks and various things, we had to put that within the minutes and present that to the bank and now it seems like there's even more that they want to know that we've verified so that they can maybe you could just tell us what we need to do. Well in order to get a bank card for this account which is that we could get we just have to have that written in the minutes saying that we agree with that and but if we had the, the card I think for the sermon.net has to be paid by credit card. Right? If that would be an easier way to do that. So I guess if someone can put forward a motion basically saying that as, as a congregation we have um, transferred um, person being the secretary from Raven to Sheila and that we've given her our okay to um, Get a bank card? Is that basically yeah, just the book? Yeah.
and that way you don't have to reimburse somebody if they pay for it. It basically just simplifies things online. Online, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. The server don't have it. Just move to my credit card and just payment. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't do it for that. Well, anyway, we'll do that, and then we have that because it's. Yeah. Well, even the fact that um, I think if you have that card, state whoever. It happened that um, someone else became secretary. Like Bridget couldn't deposit money or anything, but if we have that card, at least someone could put money in and do those things. I would yeah. think, yeah. yeah. So. And that has authority to put money and stuff into it. Right. Yeah, I don't quite understand. I guess all their rules, but I know I went to put money in for Morgan, and they wouldn't let me put money in. And I know this lady told us you couldn't see why not. They're always happy to take money. So yeah. Like, <laughs> it doesn't really get sick. <laughs> this is still money's going out. Yeah. 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 yeah, I told her if anyone comes in and wants to put my account, just feel free to let them. Alrighty, so that's what we'll go with. If that's good with people. Okay. Sorry? So we'll close with 222. Is there someone willing to? Able to have Bible study Thursday night, Gail? Okay, so Bible study at Gail's Thursday evening. Anything else? Yeah, you weren't here early enough, we mentioned. <laughs> yeah, the collection is for the foreign mission. 222. We'll close with 222. <laughs>